Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Furley here. Coming up on the Country Hour, the state's agriculture department is set to be lumped in with energy, environment and climate action after a restructure takes place next year. You'll hear from VFF President Emma Germano. And as farm kids finishing school pack their bags to further their education, the Country Education Foundation is calling on the federal government to remove red tape that can prevent them receiving financial support until they turn 21. Also, a bit of rain about in some parts of the state. Text in. What did you get at your place? 0467 842 722. First up, though, let's go to Rural News with Emma Field. G'day, Angus. Making rural news this Monday. The wool market bounced back last week with the eastern market indicator finishing the week 54 cents per kilogram higher. All categories rose except merino cardings, which were down slightly. The southern market indicator was up an impressive 73 cents. Elders Victorian District Wool Manager Maddie Gulliger said it was largely down to an easing of lockdown restrictions in China. We had a huge change in sentiment from China, which resulted in quite a strong market for the week. There was hints in the week to come that some of the China restrictions were going to lift and then also the currency on the day helped us out a little bit as well. But I don't think anyone did expect quite a strong leap. So is it really all down to restrictions easing in China? Is that what's driving this? As our largest consumer of wool, their uh, sentiment on the market has a massive impact and... We're starting to see a lot more long-term optimism, especially leading into um, the second quarter of next year. Now, this, uh, this week coming is the last before the Christmas break. Do you think it could continue? Um, I'd like to see it stay firm next week. We've got just under 50,000 bales next week, which is the last, largest for the season. So um, with that extra supply, um, it'd be nice to see it stay steady. And a new report by accounting firm Deloitte has recommended that a single enforceable standard for accommodation be established to improve living conditions for horticulture workers. The review was commissioned by Coles and the Retail Supply Chain Alliance. Report author Victoria Whitaker says horticulture workers can be vulnerable to exploitation because often English is their second language and they're reluctant to complain to their employers in case they lose their job. The accommodation that they're provided can be, you know, up to eight people living in a bedroom in a four-bedroom house. So lots of people living in that house with one bathroom and lots of rules about what they can and can't do. And what we found um, by far and large is that there's a lot of variety um, of different accommodation standards, different um, fees that they're getting charged, different deductions that they're getting made. It's, it's certainly not uniform across the market. They do need to be licensed under the Pacific um, Labor Migrant Scheme. So there is a licensing requirement and there are certain duties that they need to fulfil in order to bring workers to Australia. But I think what we found was also some workarounds. For example, under the scheme for Pacific um, migrant workers, they're required to provide a support person, so someone who's going to look after the workers' wellbeings. And what we found in some instances was the cost of that was being deducted from the workers' wages. So you're recommending a single enforceable standard for accommodation for workers. How, how would that work? We, we make a number of recommendations. We did find a number of different standards that are out there at the moment that are being applied in different ways. We believe that by 
providing a base protects workers, but by lifting the bar in other ways as well, you can actually attract workers to different regions of Australia and therefore give competitive advantage by actually looking after the workers. Pig hunters and residents of Cape York and the Torres Strait in far north Queensland are being encouraged to consider becoming vaccinated against Japanese encephalitis. The viral disease carried by pigs and waterbirds can be transmitted to people through mosquito bites. Public Health Medical Officer with the Torres and Cape Hospital and Health Service, Dr Alison Hempenstall, says while JEV is asymptomatic, it can cause severe health issues. Others might have mild disease, which can include fever, headache, weakness. And then what we're most concerned about is severe disease, which can present as seizures, altered conscious state, vomiting. And local garlic farmers are struggling with the wet and cold season this year. Chair of the Australian Garlic Industry Association, John Olaf, says the weather has been a challenge. Look, you know, some of the stories you hear, and I haven't verified a lot of them, but I'm hearing lots of things around secondary shooting. Garlics that are too wet to harvest, can't get out of the ground. Paddocks have been flooded and grounds inundated. So, look, I think there's a lot of difficulty within our sector. It would be just the same as most other uh, agriculture, horticulture sectors in Australia at the moment. You know, it's just been a uniquely different year. And for today, that's Rural News. Thanks, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News. Some rainfall figures coming through on the text line. Matt at Wearwright, 25 mil and counting, Matt. Just past the inch mark. Hmm. 22 mil at Skipton in the same part of the world. Text in, how much are you, have you had or are you getting at your place? 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano says she fears lumping the State Agriculture Department in with the new Energy, Environment and Climate Action Department could result in further greenwashing of the state's agriculture policies. The new department, led by Minister for Climate Action Lily D'Ambrosio, will take control of the Ag Department from the start of next year. Emma Germano says the VFF has had no communication from the government over the restructure. Look, it's a bit difficult to understand uh, what implications there's going to be for agriculture. So we've um, reached out to the ministers and want to get in there and have a meeting with them and see what implications there are actually going to be. I guess the first reaction is that it certainly seems like um, there would be concern from us around it being part of the environment portfolio because we don't want to see agriculture any further greenwashed, I suppose. Having said that, I mean, there might be some benefits to agriculture if the, the consultation um, is genuine. Um, uh, because we know that there's a lot of places where um, right now climate and energy policy are um, overlaying with agriculture and, and not necessarily for the good of agriculture. So it might be good, it might be bad. Um, it does feel a little bit like a downgrade at this point in time, but we'll get better understanding um, as we go. That term greenwashed and the, the fear that that may happen, what does that mean? I guess we're seeing um, a lot of policies being put forward and an agenda that's about the environment and climate action um, and reduced emissions with all of these targets in place 
uh, and we know that that has a significant impact on agriculture um, and agricultural policy, we've got to make sure that we keep food security um, and the people who do food and fibre production <clears throat> at the centre of all of these policy debates and, and this agenda to become more green. Uh, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and we've got to be really careful what we're trading off here, particularly in an environment where we're actually finally starting to have a conversation um, nationally about what does food security in Australia look like and have we been giving it enough consideration. Are you concerned with this government that it potentially prioritises environmental management and, and some of its green policies over agricultural production? Oh, absolutely, there's that concern. I think we've seen that in the last term of government and, you know, this is something that we're, as a society and as a community, we're working towards and trying to work out. But right now, I think sometimes the targets are being put above the practicalities of how do we actually get to those targets and what are the trade-offs? Because we know that trade-offs have to be made, but um, having a, a resilient food and fibre sector in Victoria is, you know, absolutely tantamount to economic performance. But also, again, that, that notion of bringing it back to food security, we're just seeing that disruption in a lot of places already. We're seeing energy costs skyrocketing and I just don't think that there's been a holistic kind of um, understanding as to how all of these policies fit together. So the potential that by bringing them into the same department we might actually see that more holistic viewpoint um, but also there's the risk that it, it you know we've been downgraded and, and food and fibre production is kind of always put last at the end of priorities and, and that has to shift. Have you been consulted on or informed of this restructure or reshuffle? No, we, the first we heard of it was in a media release uh, put out by the government. Um, we know that the Premier, Premier's department is having um, more and more say in all of the different departments that are going on and we think that this is a, a move that will probably facilitate uh, even more of that. Um, we've reached out to um, all the respective ministers and, and want to get in there and meet with them as soon as possible, um, not just in, in the ag portfolio but across all of the other portfolios where um, policies are, are really important to Victorian producers. You said the Premier's department is having an increasing say on various matters. Does that mean that you think the, the influence or the relevance of the State Agriculture Minister is being diminished? Look, I don't know if it's necessarily happening in a moment of of time, like right now. I think it's probably something that's been happening for a while. We, we saw all of that, um, all of the resources being stripped out of Agriculture Victoria, which, you know, we need to keep on that and we need to make sure that uh, we've got a government that understands the value of food and fibre production in this state and the good things that we can do for the environment and uh, climate action and all of those things. It seems to me that it's always as if it's one versus the other uh, and we need to understand and um, how to make sure that we have that holistic viewpoint where farmers are put in the box seat to, able, uh, to be able to contribute um, to these targets but are also not disadvantaged. And certainly we have to have an entire community that understands that we've all got to be paying for climate action and we've all got to be paying for uh, biodiversity and, and environmental services. It can't be that farms are left, that they're not profitable because the number one thing uh, for food security in this country is ensuring that people that produce food can make money in those businesses. We have to see a shift in attitude there because we've seen some really regressive policies for agriculture over the last three years and we know that there's, um, sorry, four years and we know that there's uh, some big things on the agenda coming forward like the animal welfare legislation for example, that stuff needs to be really properly considered in regards to food security and farmer profitability. This new department, the Department of Energy, Environment and Climate Action that will incorporate Agriculture Victoria, the lead minister for that department will be Lily D'Ambrosio. Uh, have you got a relationship with her? 
Look, the VFS has had quite a good relationship with um, Lily over, you know, the past number of years. Um, obviously, we were a little bit annoyed about the whole camping thing and that fell under Lily's um, purview and, you know, being promised things like the um, re registration system, uh, you know, and that hasn't come on the line. So, you know, relationships ebb and flow. Um, we've got the capacity to have that conversation with Lily, but we, you know, we need to ensure again, you know, we're only one of many um, stakeholders that um, are being either consulted or not being consulted and we need to make sure that there is that really open and transparent consultation and an understanding as to what it is that the government wants to achieve um, so that we can mitigate the risk of those um, uh, of those agendas and also contribute um, with our know-how and our knowledge about how we're going to go about producing this food. I don't like the fact that agriculture is not in the name that got downgraded many years ago that we you know agriculture and resources is no longer in the name of any, of any of the departments and it probably should be you know it, it's a priority. Apart from departmental structures What's the VFF's view on how Agriculture Victoria is, is performing, is functioning? Look, we have a good relationship with AgVic. We see them do some really phenomenal work. Um, particularly, I think they've been really, really supportive during the uh, flood crisis that's been going on. Um, but I, I look at the look at the department and just say that it's under-resourced and that there's been so much grunt um, taken out of it. You know, all of this soil science stuff. Some of the um, most experienced uh, scientists have been, you know, made redundant in this period of time. And we need to understand. We should be building the capacity of agriculture, Victoria, um, not diminishing it. So we definitely want to see those resources provided for agriculture. And then, you know, there's this attitude that we want to change the way that we live and we want to reduce our carbon emissions and we want to, you know, do all of these different things. And, you know, agriculture was um, the basis of the way that our communities um, and our civilizations, in fact, have um, been able to prosper. And we can't uh, allow that to um, be diminished. We have to understand that having a prosperous food, um, food industry is... is what makes us have the ability to do lots of other things and, and often pays for all of the other things that are nice to have in society. So we need to see that shift in attitude and, um, and we need to see it ASAP because there's just so many challenges globally right now when it comes to food production and food security. Emma, while I've got you, uh, the VFF election is running at the moment. Voting closes 5pm tomorrow. Uh, and when the results come out, the president will either be yourself again, either Meg Parkinson or Paul Mumford, Vice President Danielle Cuccinotto or Bernie Free, and UDV President being voted on as well, Mark Billing or Ian Morris. Uh, and those results, they'll, they'll get to us before Christmas? On the 23rd, uh, I've been told the announcement will be on the 23rd. The vote count happens um, in the afternoon of the 22nd. Um, there was a change in the dates as to when the announcement and the count would happen, uh, just to ensure that we were giving um, the mail time to arrive and, and making sure that people knew that they, they could vote right up until uh, the deadline. As long as their um, ballot is postmarked before the end of the deadline, then that will be counted and enables uh, the counting to happen for everybody who sends a vote in. So, yes, there might be lots of change or um, I'm hoping things kind of stay uh, similar and I get the opportunity to continue on doing what we've um, started to do between myself and Danielle and um, yeah but in any case we know that the VFF is really an important organisation and it still does this advocacy um, you know on behalf of not just the farmers but regional Victoria and, and it's great to see that people are interested in these roles and that elections are contested. That was Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano and we contacted Lily D'Ambrosio's office on the shifting of 
Agriculture Victoria into a new department featuring energy, environment and climate action. And we were told that Lily D'Ambrosio was too busy to speak with us today. On the text line, more rainfall figures. Clearly there's been some rain about overnight. 16 mil at Daramox, 26.5 mil at rural Lee and Gatha. And Dave at Lake Tyres says the lake remains open and 32 mil since 6am yesterday. And Dave, you've addressed it to Warwick. Warwick's actually going to be away from the country hour until February. He's got some holidays and also filling in for some other presenters who have got holidays. So for the next... Uh, couple of months, it'll be myself um, and the other rural reporters as well stepping in, Annie Brown, Kelly Hollingworth, Peter Somerville, Jane McNaughton, we'll all be sharing the presenting duties while Warwick's away. So uh, please keep texting into us, 0467 842 The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. An ABC investigation has revealed the owner of a livestock ship that sunk in a typhoon two years ago had dozens of safety breaches flagged by maritime authorities. Gulf Livestock One, which was carrying 600 heifers from 6,000 heifers from New Zealand to China, sank in waters off Japan in 2020. And 40 of the 43 people on board have never been found, including Australians William Mainprize and Lucas Order. I spoke with Alison McClymont, producer in the ABC's investigative unit, about their story. The new stuff that we found was the uh, financial situation of the owner of Golf Livestock One, which is Golf Navigation Holding out of Dubai. And at the time when Golf Livestock One capsized in the East China Sea in September 2020, it was, you know, it was more or less insolvent. They had been in financial difficulties for some time. And we found that sort of, you know, up until that time, I think it was a half a billion dollars they were in debt. So how does the the financial instability of the ship owner relate to uh, the condition of the ship and perhaps why it did sink? I don't really know. It's coincidental that there were so many breaches, like safety breaches and what they call deficiencies, on Gulf Livestock One, I think there was 34 breaches and it had been detained in Broome in 2019 for a number of, I think it was for a number of failures. And up until when the vessel sunk in 2020, it had had a number of deficiencies, including those major ones like engine failure. And it failed on the journey a couple of times. That's right. And you've got some communication from the two Australians who were on board and who'd lost their lives texting back to Australia, back to their friends and families, just reporting on on the, uh, the rickety state of the, the vessel, I suppose. Yes. I mean, I feel so much for the families. It's just that you'd never get any closure of what actually happened to your, you know, your son or your brother. And uh, it's been devastating for them. And I don't know if they quite realised how bad it was when they were, you know, texting and sending photos back to the family. Because you can't in the, in the vision that you see, it looks bad, but it must have been a lot worse than what it was. You also report uh, on this vessel, you report on the safety issues with it. Uh, it was an old vessel. It was converted from a container carrier. And at the same time, the ship's captain proceeded 
along its original path and into the path of this typhoon that that eventually sunk it while other commercial vessels in the region deviated from their course? Yes, the Gulf Livestock One was built in 2002 and it was converted to a livestock vessel in about 2015. And I'm not an expert on this, but, you know, maritime experts do say that livestock, when a cargo ship is converted into a livestock vessel, it's not as stable. But why the captain went straight into a typhoon when other, you know, ships went in other directions, I mean, who knows? I don't know if he was directed to go there or who knows? No one's ever going to know. As I mentioned, two Australians were on board, William Mainprize, a stockman from Sydney, and a veterinarian, Lucas Order, from Queensland. You spoke with Lucas Order's parents, and they questioned why so much money and time and effort was spent on the search for Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, but not an equivalent search effort for this ship, which is still yet to be found? It's true. You know, Dr Orders, he was saying that you know, they spend all this money on trying to find planes that have gone down. But when it comes to a livestock vessel with 43 people on board, they just they think the government hasn't been interested at all. And so they're really trying to push for that. But, you know, whether that will happen, it's, you know, it's not in Australian waters. So who knows who can do that? And Alison, with this ship, uh, we should point that like many ships... It was registered in Panama, and that means that the the authority that's responsible for investigating why it sunk is it's not Australian or New Zealand authorities. It's the Panama Maritime Authority. And can, can you talk me through that, and also why so many vessels are registered in Panama and, and other like countries? I think they're registered in in countries like Panama to get around sort of any kind of things about crewing and about you know, safety and things like that, they get around it that way. So it's called a flag of convenience when, you're, when your ship is flagged. And I think it, it's probably for tax reasons as well. So the Gulf Livestock One is owned by a shell company in the Panama and that shell company is then owned by Gulf Navigation Holdings. So it's very hard for the families to take legal action against the... Uh, the company in Dubai because it's owned in the Panama. The rules of the sea are just kind of lawless. You know, people can get away with a lot. And the Panama, you know, Maritime Authority hasn't released that report. It's been sitting there. I have called them on a number of occasions and they wouldn't tell me when it's being released. But it's, you know, the families don't hope for any sort of answers with that. And I know you don't have that report, but... From your investigation and from the people you spoke to, this vessel, Gulf Livestock One, should it have been on the waters? I can't say that. You know, I I don't know. It definitely had a lot of problems and it should have been checked on a more regular basis, I think. That was Alison McClymont, producer in the ABC's investigative unit. On the text line, more rainfall figures. Barry from Kyabram, 10 mil. Alex at Savanac, 7.5 mil. And Trevor at Tarang, 17 mil. And Trevor says that's 16 mil too much. 0467 842 722. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Well, inaccessible student allowances and asset testing are holding farm kids' education back, according to a not for profit. 
The Country Education Foundation is calling on the federal government to get rid of the red tape that deems children dependent on their parents or guardians until certain financial checkpoints are met or until they turn 21. Nicole Wright from the Foundation says asset testing of farming families can also make it impossible for rural students to get government support. There are supports there available for students, which is fantastic, but when it comes to the supports for our regional students and rural students, that asset testing and income testing provides a massive red tape issue for them, particularly in that transition straight from school to tertiary education. The fact that they are still classed as, you know, dependent on what mum and dad have or their guardians have, it makes it a real challenge for them in order to be able to to make that leap and, and take on that education because financially for them, it it becomes a real issue financially for the families. It's extremely difficult because assets is one thing, being able to pay, you know, mortgage and, and another rent for 12 months, you know, to help your child be able to do that is absolutely another thing. That's what we see that causes the real problem for our rural students. And unfortunately, when it comes to something like youth allowance, for example, the system makes it really hard for them to do that. Most people would assume that once a person hits the age of 18, they would be deemed independent. Is that the case? Yeah. No, it's not, unfortunately. I think it's actually up until around the age of 22, I believe, otherwise dependent on the kind of work hours and income you earn once you do leave home. Um, but no, not 18 straight off, straight off the bat. The system doesn't work that way. So there's currently a clause in the youth allowance system saying that rural and remote students can be deemed independent if they have worked at least 15 hours a week for or a minimum of two years since leaving school. That doesn't include hours worked throughout the school year by the sounds of it. No, so and and the the criteria is very clear on that when we look at the the Services Australia website is that it cannot include hours or income worked whilst at secondary school. Why is that? Um, if I am being completely honest, we're not sure about that. We, we, we sort of, we, we don't know why that is. It's problematic because what we do also know, actually if students defer study to take a gap year, the chances of them going back and actually taking that study up reduce significantly. The majority actually won't go back to study. So that becomes really problematic then when the only option they have, you know, for this potential kind of support is based on that very gap year, the likelihood is they're not going to have to take it up. It, it just doesn't make sense. If we want the students to be able to get the education they need to have quality jobs and to be able to live quality lives, you know, we need to be able to provide that kind of support up front. For, for us, that's what we believe. We feel that being able to make that youth allowance more accessible in that first instance, in that immediate transition period, which is where a lot of students want to do their study. They want to go, you know, straight from school to TAFE or university or whatever it is they might be doing. We know that the current government has come out and said that in the next five years, you know, 95% of jobs in Australia are going to require some sort of post-school qualification. If that's the case, this is kind of the time that this all really needs to be looked at and, and changed, we think. That was Nicole Wright from the Country Education Foundation speaking with Jane McNaughton. Just gone 28 minutes to one. You're listening to the Country Hour with Angus Furley and let's get to news headlines now with Courtney Howe. Good afternoon, Angus. 
Police are continuing to search Lake Mulwala on the Victoria New South Wales border for a missing 16-year-old boy. Two teenagers were fishing in a tinny near Yarrawonga yesterday morning when their boat was hit by a wave. Both fell in and while one was rescued, the other boy couldn't be found. Search and rescue officers are scouring the area with the assistance of the Air Wing, SES and police divers. The Victorian government has congratulated the state's VCE students on getting their final results today. Close to 50,000 VCE students and 15,000 VCAL students received their final scores this morning. 13,000 VCE students have received a high study score of 40 or more. The Royal Australian College of General Practitioners says the vast majority of GPs do the right thing amid new allegations of Medicare rorting. The Age is reporting that some TriStar Medical Group GPs charged Medicare for more hours than they saw patients for, while authorities did not act on a series of red flags. The chain collapsed in May, leaving five towns in Victoria with less than one GP after a buyer could only be found for some of the clinics. RAC GP President Dr Nicole Higgins says a lot of GPs are following the rules. A veteran-led volunteer group has finished a flood cleanup operation in regional Victoria and plans to return in the new year. Disaster Relief Australia teams have been on the ground in Shepparton, Echuca, Rochester and surrounding areas since October, working alongside local volunteers, organisations and councils. Deputy Commander Ben Leslie says his skilled teams have completed nearly 300 requests for assistance, saving the community an estimated $1 million. And health professionals are concerned a drop in the number of cancer diagnoses could mean more people are living with the illness without knowing it. The latest report from the Victorian Cancer Registry found a 4.3% decline of cancer diagnosis last year. The report also shows regional Victorians are 9% more likely to be diagnosed with cancer than those living in the major cities. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon, Angus. Thanks, Courtney. Courtney Howe there with news headlines. Let's get to the Weather Bureau now where Senior Forecaster Simon Timkey is on the line. Good afternoon, Simon. G'day, Angus. Simon, we've been asking our listeners to send in rainfall figures and uh, quite a bit about overnight. Uh, David Lake Tyres, 32 mil, 26 mil at Lee and Gather, uh, 20 mil at Baton East. So uh, a fair bit of rain about. There certainly has been. Um, looking on uh, on our sort of display, we've had fair uh, number of places across the eastern ranges picking up 30 to 45 millimetres or so, and and pretty pretty widespread areas over central and eastern parts uh, picking up 15 to 30 millimetres. So quite wet uh, 24-hour period. The the main sort of uh, heavier, I guess more widespread uh, falls have moved to the east now but there's still plenty of showers pushing up in a pretty fresh to strong and gusty uh, west to southwesterly airstream so with those fairly strong winds the showers will blow through quickly so probably not likely to see as falls as as heavy as that during the day but Certainly fairly frequent showers, particularly about the ranges in south of, but even to the north there's still a few showers pushing across. So the rainfall total is not likely to be as high, um, but, but in that uh, uh, few hours since 9am this morning, quite a few spots uh, uh, are picking up the order of 5 to 10 millimetres, with a couple of spots out east getting up to, to 10 to 15. So those uh, scattered showers continuing for the rest of today, 
and into tomorrow. We'll see another another cold front push across um, from the southwest on Tuesday, which will keep those those stronger southwesterly winds going. Um, keep the showers continuing as well. Again, particularly about the ranges into the southeast but, and to the south. But I think even st- still see some showers through Tuesday push up over the the uh, areas north of the ranges there. Still pretty windy um, tomorrow, uh, and quite a cold air mass uh, pushing up from the southwest behind tomorrow's front. So later in the afternoon and evening, we'll see uh, a chance of some small hail with some of those showers over um, southwest and central parts of the state, uh, and the snow levels dropping too. We're expecting a snow uh, showers possible above about 1,400 metres today, but dropping to, to parts above about 1,000 metres on, uh, on uh, Tuesday late afternoon and, and overnight. So quite getting quite low with those, uh, those snow levels. On Wednesday... We'll, we'll see a low pressure system become established uh, to the east of Tassie. That'll direct more more southerly winds over Victoria. Still a, quite an unstable cold air mass, so still a, a, a chance of some small hail in some of the showers over the sort of more eastern parts of the central district and over Gippsland. The um, snow levels... Uh, above a thousand metres still, but but rising to be above uh, around fifteen hundred metres by the end of the day, or, or so, um, and plenty of showers continuing about and south of the ranges. Probably most frequent about uh, Gippsland and the Central District, um, and then gradually through the later part of the week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we'll see those showers gradually contract eastward so that by Saturday I think they'll be mostly confined to, uh, to, to Gippsland. But, but certainly temperatures staying well below average uh, right through this week. Uh, maximum temperatures uh, sort of 6 to 12 degrees below average, so a pretty extended period of below average temperatures. Even looking ahead over the weekend and Monday next week, um, we'll see a slight rise in temperatures as a, as a high pressure system becomes established uh, uh, to the southwest of Tasmania, directing our winds a little bit more easterly and seeing temperatures slowly rise, but, but still struggling to get up to even near average temperatures for this time of year, Angus. Absolutely, Simon. I just I keep waiting for the weather to turn, and it just isn't happening. No, no, it's really uh, a, a very cool start to, to summer and, and quite wet over a lot of parts too. So uh, summer's uh, really, really sort of struggling to, to have an impact on us as far as uh, um, warmer conditions and drier conditions go. Mm, thanks, Simon. Thanks, Angus. Simon Timkey there from the Bureau bringing you the forecast, which is really just cold, cold, cold. On that note, let's have a look at the text line. Some more rainfall figures as well. And I know no one really wants the rain, but we still better talk about it since it is happening. And Paul from Trafalgar. I make no silage for us today at uh, Druin South. Too wet for silage. Another texter says raining at Passchendaele. And, oh, David Lake Tyres has said, sorry, Angus, wrong name. We'll get it right next time. No stress, Dave. And Tony from Upton Hill, 23 mil to 9 a.m. 0467-842-722 is the text line. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, lumpy skin disease. We haven't talked about it for a while on the Country Hour, but it's edging closer to the country's north, with reports of viruses reached East Java. The viral disease was first detected in Sumatra in March. Dr Ross Ainsworth is a Bali-based vet who has spent the past 40 years working between the Northern Territory and Southeast Asia. 
He says the movement of the disease closer to Australian shores is concerning. There is a confirmed case that I've seen some documentation on from East Java, and that's in the last week or so. There was a confirmed case or a number of confirmed cases in central Java in September, and uh, as of a few weeks ago till now, there are also lots more unconfirmed cases, and it's pretty easy disease to recognise. So the unconfirmed cases are in southern Sumatra, West Java, Central Java and East Java. So it's pretty much, it would appear fairly certain that the disease is now spread throughout Java all the way to the east. And the implication is that the next cab off the rank will be infection in Bali. Right, okay. So for those that don't have an overview of what Indonesia looks like, how much closer does this bring lumpy skin disease to the north of Australia, geographically speaking? It's probably an extra thousand kilometres closer. So it's very significant and it demonstrates that the disease is heading in an eastward direction towards Timor where the real risk will come from the uh, potential of insects flying across or being blown across the ocean uh, to northern Australia. You mentioned that Bali was the next cab off the rank as lumpy skin moves further east. If it were to get to Bali, what sort of risk does that pose to Australia? Does that mean, you know, mozzies could be coming back on flights as tourists come home? What's your take on that? Yes, look, it's not like uh, foot and mouth where it's so easy to carry on humans and other inanimate objects. So the risk is not that the people will take it with them back to Australia. The risk is that it's then that much closer to Timor where the distance across the ocean to Darwin is the least. So if, and it's a big if, if the insects carrying the virus can be blown across the Timor Sea, then every step towards the east in that direction is a bad thing. But Bali doesn't represent a risk for tourists taking it home, I don't think. A very small risk anyway. But uh, as I said, we simply don't know enough about this disease to predict it. What do we know about how it, it spread so far? Well, that's the issue, really. We know so little about this disease, so much guesswork and so little hard scientific information. We don't know exactly which uh, insects carry it. We don't know how far they go. There is uh, some people are pretty confident that the spread throughout Java is by the movement of, of animals themselves or uh, infected material from animals, and that's quite possible, in fact, probable. The movement restrictions in Indonesia are a bit hit and miss, so it's possible for animals to move and spread the disease. It's not permitted to bring cattle and buffalo into Bali from Java, so that will be a good test of the movement of the disease. If the disease gets here, that will provide some sort of probable uh, proof that the disease is transmitted to Bali through insects. The problem is that this disease has been infecting countries that don't have major cattle industries that export cattle and therefore depend on those cattle industries for their income. So it's, it's never been seriously studied. They just use a live vaccine and it more or less sort of keeps it under control. But Australia doesn't have the luxury of using live vaccines for new diseases, so we need to know a lot more about this disease and we need better vaccines, 
we need uh, lots of research and uh, unfortunately we have to start almost from scratch. How is the vaccine rollout going in Indonesia? Very slow. So the big push of course is to vaccinate for foot and mouth disease and that's uh, rightly so. It's a more serious disease for them at the moment and also they're just strapped for cash. You know they've had to raid their treasury for the large sums of money necessary to to buy vaccines. The the buying the vaccines probably the easier part. The more difficult part is finding the money to get that vaccine delivered into the cow. You have to get it out into the regions. You have to hire a lot of staff. You have to train them how to do the vaccination. Then you've got to provide them with all the gear. Just to make matters even more complicated, when there's both foot and mouth and lumpy skin in the country, you can't use a multiple dose vaccine syringe like we all do in Australia. You can't do that when there's a disease that's spread by a live virus. So you have to use a single syringe, throw it away, pull out another one, load up and give the next animal a shot. So very, very expensive, slow. To make matters even worse, if you go to a farm in Australia, you might have 100 cows, you might have 1,000 and you're there and you get the job done. In Indonesia, the average herd is two. So you go to the farm, you do your biosecurity, you put your boots on and scrub them and whatever other biosecurity, and you do two head. Then you have to take it all off and clean it all up or get some new stuff and go to the next place. Very, very difficult, slow and expensive. That was Bali-based vet Dr Ross Ainsworth speaking with Steph Sinclair. More rainfall figures. Luke at Cobain's, 18 mil. Leo says, G'day Angus, 8.5 mil so far at Gundowering, washing the silt off the grass in those flooded paddocks. Doing more good than harm. Good to hear, Leo. Tom at Tatura says 7 mil. And another texter says 19 mil at Sedgwick. 0467 822 is the text line. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Well, we'll stay on livestock now because producers in northern Victoria are reporting high losses from worms as the wet conditions have created ideal conditions for the parasite to thrive. Dr Graham Lane is Principal Consultant with AgriVet Business Consulting in Hamilton. He's heard numerous reports of losses and is urging livestock producers to act to reduce their worm numbers. Yes, I have heard reports of uh, significant losses and part of that due to the unseasonal amount of rain that some of those areas have received where farmers would not have been expected the sort of rainfall that would generate high worm numbers like they've been experiencing. Okay, so perhaps drier areas experiencing weather patterns more like uh, southern Victoria? Well, well, truly agree with southern Victoria. It's been extraordinarily wet, but also prolonged um, continual rainfall would have allowed for some of those worm generations to build up and hence uh, potentially life-threatening for sheep. And farmers in those areas would not normally be in that position to have to control worms under those circumstances. So if you have got, in the end of the situation where you've got high worm counts, where to from that position? Well, the critical thing will be to follow strategic worming uh, treatments as outlined uh, I'd recommend people to have a look at the Worm Boss site and the Worm Boss program for Victoria. I was co-author of that. Uh, and that outlines strategic worm control for different regions of Victoria. But 
further, I would certainly advise to get some uh, good advice from an animal health advisor on worm control, and um, that would include uh, things like uh, worm egg counting and sitting down and working out exactly what program might be best going forward. So one of the things I'd emphasise too is that there is a growing problem of drench resistance across many of the actives and people need to know where they stand in terms of their farm's uh, drench resistance status. Okay, so you can do drench testing to, to uh, determine the effectiveness of the drenches that you are intending to use? Correct, you can. And uh, worm egg counting on a regular basis will help monitor where the worm population is standing across the farm. And how important is it now to be thinking of controlling worm numbers uh, in preparation for next autumn and, and winter? Now is a critical time because, uh, you know, for much of southern Victoria, on average about 40% of worm eggs deposited around November, December tend to contribute to uh, next year's worm population in winter. So if you're not controlling worms now, and thus the recommendation is for a first summer trench across all sheep classes at this time of the year, then setting up next winter for another problem. And particularly if we have wet conditions on top of what we've had, then the sheep worm population will be quite a threat to livestock next year. Graham, you referenced the Worm Boss program, which uh, talks about smart grazing over summer following summer drenches. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, it's an alternative to using uh, more intensive chemical control. So, for example, um, if you use adult sheep, drench adult sheep for one month to graze off pastures that are going to be prepared for weaners the following year or, or landsticks the following year, then um, you can get very good levels of worm controls. Intensively graze that area for one month to remove as much dry matter as you can and open up that paddock, to, a pasture to um, sunlight, which kills the, any remaining worm larvae. So very high levels of control have been achieved with that smart grazing technique. Okay, Graham. So we should highlight at this point the fact that those long-acting drench capsules, those Dynamax drench capsules, have been discontinued. So that's not a worm control option any longer available to farmers. So, But you don't seem overly concerned by that because of these alternative methods like intensive summer grazing? Absolutely not. There's a very good alternative uh, long-acting product and the moxidectin LA uh, injection. That has similar effectiveness to the capsules at much lower cost. Uh, Graham, earlier on you talked about avoiding drench resistance, so do you need to strike a balance there between drenching enough and not drenching too much? Correct. The key is to control worms, not to eliminate them, so you know, usage of um, long-acting products should be always uh, combined with a primary drench to effectively make a combination drench out of that long acting. But I emphasise the professional advice, and for those that use capsules, they're about $5 a head. Alternatively, they can use long acting, a long acting program for about $2 with the primer as well. And they've got $3 a head to spend on professional advice. So, you know, that goes a long way to professional advice. I mean, if you've got 3,000 years, you've got $9,000 to play with to get good advice to help make sure the program is adequate for your needs. And it's important that, to realise that long-acting products aren't always needed, as in 
that smart grazing will prov- provide control that is just up, right up there with capital usage. So a capital or long-acting product is not always going to be best. <laughs> it depends on the situation. That was Dr Graham Lane, Principal Consultant with AgriVet Business Consulting in Hamilton. We'll get to market shortly, but a quick look at the text line. We've been talking about this very cold and, and wet at the moment weather. Well, Pete in Central Vic says the cold weather is actually a blessing to those of us who have sheep with 14 months of wool still needing to be shorn. Mm, we might give you a call. Peter, that's, uh, that's a predicament. And, yeah, there are quite a few people finding themselves in that position. DJ as well on the text line says, Hey, Gus, uh, DJ at Marawara, six smell and feels like autumn. And it really does. There's no hint of summer or even spring in the air. It, it, it feels autumn-like. 0467-842-722 is the text line. That does mean it's time for markets and five markets to get through today, but let's start at Mortlake Cattle with Tim Delaney. Good afternoon. There was a lift in cattle numbers to 712 at Morlake for the last prime sale of the year. User buyers attended as quality was mostly good. Prices of the largest five deals were mostly five cents easier, with a few sales up to 10 cents cheaper at times. Although reaching a top of 496 cents, the mixed quality grown steers and heifers sold firm. The improved penning of cows sold to a deer trend from five to 10 cents. Villa sold mainly for 385 to 460 cents, a single sale excellent quality reaching 496 cents. The restock was paying from 410 and also 496 cents a kilogram. Yearly steers made from 410 to 430 cents. The restock was paid to 434 cents. Heavy yearlings were from 400 to 433 cents. And restock is paying up to 425 cents a kilogram. Heavy grain steers made from 344 to 430 cents as the feed is paid to 414. Freezy steers made from 300 to 340 cents a kilogram. Beef grown heifers with cover sold from 330 to 410 cents. The heavy beef cows made from 320 to 360 cents. This has been Tim Delaney reporting at MLA Mortlake. Thanks, Tim. Packingham Cattle now with Brendan Fletcher. Numbers increased to 1,070. That's 70 more with most of the usual buyers operating in the dearer market. Quality was good with a few more grown and a great selection of vealers. Trade cattle lifted 20 to 50 cents. Bullocks improved 10 cents on most sales and more in places. Manufacturing steers gained 15 to 25. Cows sold 10 to 30 cents dearer with processors loading cows for an estimated 565 to 751 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 10. Vealers sold from 384 to 518. Yearling trade steers 440 to 526. The heifer portion 392 to 490. Ground steers and bullocks 442 to 458. Heavy Frisian steers 340 to 358, crossbreds 350 to 456, most light and medium weight cows 230 to 360, heavyweights 280 to 404, heavy bulls 310 to 382. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks Brendan. Wagga cattle now with Leandax. Good afternoon. Producers held back cattle this week on last week's cheaper market with just 1,900 yarded. The smaller offering bounced prices over several categories, despite the bulk of the offering more suited to lot feeders and restockers. Not all buyers operated across feedlot or export categories. The pick of the veal, 424 to 4.80. Trade heifers jumped 45, $4 to 4.52. Feeder heifers, medium weight, Surge 45 cents, 415 to 450 
96. The lighter weights were up 40 cents, 4.52 to 4.96. Lightweight steers back to the paddock, 5.38 to 7.10. Feeder steers, medium weight, gained five, four dollars to 4.70. Trade steers gained 18 cents for the better end, 4.30 to 4.60. Heavy steers lifted seven cents to the processors, 3.45 to 4.28. Bullocks were firm. Heavy cows were keenly sought, jumping 25 cents, 3.13 to 3.60. And bulls topped at 3.55. Leanne Ducks, MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Let's go to Hamilton Lambs now with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Angus. Agents yarded 26,103 lambs at Hamilton today, an increase of some 14,818. The overall quality was very good, with lambs displaying freshness, but less overall weight than the previous sale on last Wednesday. A full field of buyers were present, and the market was firm to 5 to 8 dearer for most weights in comparison to last Wednesday's sale. Including lambs back to the paddock, these lambs also attract strong interest from processors. Top suckers have made up to $236. New season's lambs 12 to 16, 98 to 132. Trade lambs 18 to 22, 130 to 174, averaging between 700 and 830 cents. The medium trade weights 22 to 26, 132 to 210, and they were averaging 730 to 830 cents. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. And finally today, Bendigo Lambs with Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. Supply increased to 16,000 lambs and 8,000 sheep, up 10,000 head. But it was basically a store market with hardly any fat lambs over 24 kilos carcass weight. It meant the best heavy lambs from 26 to just over 30 kilos were 3 to $10 dearer at 200 to a top of $244 at over 800 cents. But this money only covered a few hundred lambs. The average run of domestic-weighted suckers weighing 20 to 24 kilos traded a few dollars either side of firm at $145 to $188 in an erratic market at an estimated $7.20 to $7.70 cents. In the store lambs, the best bred crossbreds with frame, $126 to $150 to average firm at $135. Lighter store lambs softer by 3 to 9 with the market pulled back by a lot of secondary types. The 16 to 18 kilo lambs, 100 to 131. In the mutton, light sheep bounced back up by 5 to $15 dearer at 65 to $100. Heavier sheep similar to slightly dearer. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks for that, Jenny Kelly there, reporting from the Bendigo Market. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. Just quickly on the text line, Barry says, please tell your country our people rain is never mill, ML, despite the widespread misuse. ABC should lead by example, like the Bureau. Yes, well, I think, Barry, you're right that rain is measured in millimetres uh, and saying mill is, is an, a way of abbreviating millimetres. Thanks for all your texts today. Lots of texts about millimetres of rain right around the state, really. Remember the website as well. That's abc.net.au forward slash rural. And you can look up ABC Rural on Facebook. News time, 